0: Psychology Systems Limited are the leading provider of radiotherapy ancillary equipment in the UK and Ireland. Serving the community for over 22 years, we pride ourselves on exceptional service and quality products. Please take a moment to visit our website www.osl.uk.com and take a look at our product lines which include Macromedics for patient immobilisation and IBA dissimetry for all your radiotherapy quality assurance needs. We are more than happy to take your questions so please do get in touch via our website or email inquiry at osl.uk.com and one of our specialist team will be available to assist you. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 57. My name is Naaman Jill Grandson and I'm joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Dr Hazel Rodham, who discussed her incredible career and how allied health professionals can get into research. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So, we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr Rachel Harris. Hi Rachel.
1: Hi, nice to see you both. So,
0: thank you so much for coming, Um, Joe and I are huge fans. I think we've both said that you're one of our role models, so it's lovely to have you on. (laughs) <laughs> um would you like to just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are please
1: sure well thank you for the nice introduction name that's very sweet of you so my name is Rachel Harris I'm a therapeutic radiographer by background um so I actually qualified in 1987 which makes me sound exceptionally old now doesn't it so I had the the old DCR and my training was 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 very different to how it is now so my training was uh, a little porter cabin at the back of the department Um, so I, I trained at Portsmouth and we had this little porter cabin at the back where there were four therapeutic students and so most of our time was actually in the department rather than in the porter cabin to be honest with you so very very different Um, and then when I actually qualified um, I worked as a clinically for quite a while Um, and then in sort of I think it was about the early 90s I decided to do um, an MSc in social research which really probably quite the changer for me if I'm honest with you. Um, Again Quite unusual, really. I think I don't think many of us were doing masters back in the early 90s, to be honest. So it was a bit of a groundbreaker and it was in social research. So moved slightly outside of my comfort route there and started getting involved in qualitative research. And that really changed everything for me. And from then on, really, I had a I had a really supportive departmental manager she was wonderful she said to me what are you going to do now you've got a master's and I said I don't know and she said well I think you better be my research radiographer and I said well what's one of those and she said I don't know we we'll just have to make it up as we go along because we didn't have research radiographers back then either so that was really my sort of move into research if you like so I still was working clinically um, and then it must have been about 17 years ago, I applied for the research officer post at the Society and College of Radiographers, so I uh, haven't been clinical since I took that role, um, and that was really leading sort of the research for our organisation, And and now I'm the Head of Professional Practice and Education, so I still do the research element, but a few other things as well now. hmm there there, there's no such thing as as a as an average day or a routine day so uh, my diary starts off looking one way in the morning and and never really ends up being like that by the end of the day so it can be really varied what we do a lot of it can be member inquiries and that they always take priority for me. So if, you know, if a member's contacting me and needs some help and advice, we pick those up as quickly as we can. Most of the ones that come my way are are to do with research, but sometimes I do get a few patient inquiries um, or inquiries from members who, who were upset, particularly when we were going through COVID, a lot of those inquiries came, came my way as well. Um, Working a lot with other organisations, that's important. So the other AHP professions, but also working with people like Health Education England, for example. So a lot of it is very strategic work, I would say. Um, and then... As you know, from UKIO last week, we also sort of go out on the road. So we do presentations, um, we do school talks, things like that. We do student talks. Um, So really quite a mixed bag, I would say. Really varied. But that's what I really love about the role. There, There are no two days that are ever the same, ever the same um but my biggest thing that I think I I like the most is that is that member engagement and it's it's really great if you can if somebody contacts me wanting to know how to do a doctorate or what's the best doctorate to do and if you can spend some time and talk them through that that's a really good opportunity for me as well
0: Are there's the main projects you're working on at the moment Rachel
1: main main projects at the moment there's there's a massive piece of work that we've just taken on from health education England which is looking at uh, reforming the the radiography workforce so there are there are nine work streams within that piece of work so it's it's that's a big piece that we're going. Looking at the minute, looking at how we can um, support students, but also those who are newly qualified, you know, the apprenticeship routes, different ways of how we can help with um, recruitment and retention, really, because, as you know, our numbers are still so dreadfully low for for what we need to provide so it's a real big overhaul that's going to be happening um other pieces of work are working with people on pieces of research so Naaman working with you for example on some of the skincare work which is great I never get away from radiotherapy skincare that's been with me forever uh, <laughs> so I do you know that always amazes me how such a technical profession as ours still grapp, you know struggles to grapple with something quite as uh, straightforward as it should be really is radiotherapy skincare but we do seem to make very hard work of that one so that one's been with me for a long long time um and then other things I'm quite often doing at the moment I do quite a lot of um supervision for people who are doing doctorates and also do quite a lot of uh, examinations of doctorates as well which I I really love doing that because it gives me a chance to see how other people approach research and the different techniques that they've used which might have been quite different to how I might have done it so I really quite enjoy reading those and and being a part of those as well.
0: I think it was Amanda Boulderston who said that whatever happens she'll still somehow make her way back towards skincare resets one day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah I've, I think that's going to be my epitaph name and I'm convinced that it's just never going to go away is it
0: <laughs> no but it's great it's also great that you can get involved in so many different projects um, and obviously your personal approach to explaining research and projects and how to get into research that's something that really helped me as well so it's a testament to who you are which is lovely
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm not an academic, uh, and and I wouldn't describe myself as a natural born researcher. You know, as I say, I came from a DCR route. Um, I'm I'm always quite open about this. I failed my part one physics, and I failed my part two physics. So clearly, physics was not the subject for me. Um, uh, but I, to this day, I can remember in it was my part two physics. We had to just, you know. The, the ins and outs and workings of a nuclear reactor. And so far to date as a therapeutic radiographer, I've never had to utilize that piece of knowledge. So, um, you know, I I, I sort of struggle getting through some parts of my DCR. So when um, when I was approached and asked to do a master's, I thought, well, people like me can't do things like that. You know, I, I nobody in my family had ever been... to to university or done anything like that so I was just like completely out of my comfort zone, um and the same really doing my doctorate you know so they I honestly believe if 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 I can do a master's and a doctorate anyone can it's it's not that I'm an academic or anything like that it's just that I I got the bug for it I think of doing research and I found it really interesting looking at that evidence base behind what we do um but certainly it didn't come naturally to start with and it certainly wasn't easy to start with either so yeah I'm not a natural born academic I've just sort of gone down that pathway but uh, I still wouldn't classify myself as an academic anyway.
2: Oh but Rachel I think your passion and motivation for what research has the potential to do always seems to shine through Um, i've had the privilege of listening to you talk on many occasions, and also obviously have talks around research but you know when i see you present about the co grants you're you you are just really passionate about it and that comes across and if anything that gives people the confidence to think actually maybe i could do this and and there is a supportive network within radiography and ahps um that actually you are able to do it and i know that there have been a huge number of people in the profession that have their doctorate phd as a result of your support do you kind of recognize that do you kind of go yes that student's passed and i know i contributed to that or is it just well this is part of my job (laughs)
1: Oh, I never look at it that way, Joe. I I just am so pleased for the for the individual when they when they get there, and and I suppose you know I I I've, I've been fortunate in my career to have some people who really supported me through my my career journeys. As I say, that that first manager who supported me to do a masters, uh, and and also Audrey Patterson who who supported me to do my doctorate and really helped me through my doctorate. So it's like, I think when you've been through that journey yourself, and it's not always an easy journey, you you just want to help somebody else to get through it as easily as they can. And uh, I certainly... I I don't think I've done anything groundbreaking for anybody, but I I am passionate about it. Yeah, and I'm passionate about things like the the research grants because I think it's a real shame when people don't apply for those when that money pot is there because what most people usually say is that you know it's it's that finance and being able to buy time out that actually enables them to do the research and so you know it's really important that we that we use those money pots that are there and we've been really lucky that the the college board of trustees have really backed some great pieces of work um you know and and those people will often say to me that without that funding they wouldn't have been able to do the research so that that gives you sort of quite a buzz that, that you think yeah that that was a good outcome you know um and yeah we've seen some some doctorates come through f- through our um, doctoral fellowship scheme as well which is also nice to we'll see. definitely
2: share those links via the podcast as well for anyone who's interested um, in accessing those because they are a great opportunity and having dabbled with a few and um, it's been a great experience as well a- again having support from um college of radiographers and and forming a network of research is really important isn't it um so rachel if you don't mind I am aware that obviously unfortunately you've had to also be on the other side of healthcare professionals delivering cancer services Do you-
1: yeah no sure so um in 2016 uh I was diagnosed with um stage 2 invasive breast cancer and uh it's just a just a weird uh, different turn of events really to be on the other side of a of a cancer journey um and it's it's given me so much more insight now I think so it was about the March of 2016 um and people think I'm a bit strange when I say this but this is the truth one of my old greyhounds um Poppy she uh she and I were really close um and she spent night after night after night laying her head on my on my right breast, which is something she'd never done before. It's just really unusual. And then kept looking at me and and I thought something must be wrong with her, but clever old thing, she'd obviously found out there was something wrong with me. So eventually, it took me a while to cotton on, but eventually I, I, I examined that breast and I felt a really large lump in there. So in a true health professional fashion. I just stuck my head in the sand for a few days and thought, well, hopefully that's not what I think it is. So we just pretend that hasn't happened. Um, and then fate intervened because uh, I was of a certain age and I got suddenly called for my first routine screening mammogram. So it, that was sort of like, as I say, fate overtook really a little bit. So I went over to the mammogram and they asked me if I thought there was anything that I was concerned about. So that was when I did fess up. And um, and then I got recalled within literally a couple of days to go into the main unit. And at that visit, they did uh, they did another mammogram, they did an ultrasound, and then they did a biopsy. and And I I did something really unfair, really to the to the consultant radiographer who was on duty that day. I asked her, "Did she think it was cancer?" Which is a really unfair thing to do to somebody, but she she realized that actually the best way she could sort of um sort of relax me and and make me not worry so much was to to be truthful with me so she said that by the feel of how the needle was going in for the boxy she would have said it was 98 percent certain that it was so that's when the old roller coaster started really and you just a very bizarre journey that you suddenly go down um so I was fortunate in that I didn't, uh, there was a decision made for me not to have chemotherapy, but I had two lots of surgery and then and then radiotherapy. Um, the, fir- the first surgery was, I had a really large hematoma, so that caused a few problems, which meant I had to go in for a second surgery. And then it was the September of 2016 that I did my um, radiotherapy, which was 15 fractions then. And very different, Joe. Being being on that other side of a LINAC, you know, all those years I'd worked at LINAC, and I thought I knew what it was like for patients. And I've always been, as you know, I've always been very much into patient voice and patient experience. Um, but very different being on that being on that other side, really. And so now I'm sort of I'm comfortable in talking about it if it means that it can make it easier for anybody else at any time as I think you know we do have to use those voices and we do have to let people know what it's like Um, and there were there were some parts of that experience that were exceptionally good and people were dreadfully kind but there were also parts of that journey that were very hard and that to be honest you know we could improve a little bit. And so I think it's important that we, we sort of listen to some of that and feed that back really.
0: Yeah, it must have been I don't know, quite challenging. Was it called local for you? Did you know the people there as well? Or was it completely different?
1: Yeah, I did name and so I went back to the department that I actually had worked in. So that was quite hard for them as well as for me, to be fair. Um there there were quite a few new faces, um, and so actually it was the people who I hadn't worked with who who treated me, I think the ones I'd, I'd worked with, that would have been just a step too far for them as well. Um but I can remember um <laughs> I can remember one of my lovely treatment crew. Um the second day in they, they they kept forgetting to cover over my left breast. And I always sort of say that you know it's my right breast that's the naughty one and the left ones just had to come along for the ride really. And so it doesn't have to be exposed all the time and I found that really uncomfortable being totally naked down to the waist on a a couch so I sort of said to them on the second day that could they please cover me over and uh, and on the third day I took in a paper that I'd written about using a breast gown uh, back in the early 90s And, and one of the treatment crew told me she was only you know very 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 young at the time so that was a bit of a leveler as well <laughs> but but yeah it was it was difficult it was it, it, it was very surreal going into a department that I'd worked at but sitting in the waiting room as a patient very strange and I think the crew some of the crew did find that difficult The the receptionist was the same receptionist as when I'd worked there things like that so yeah yeah very very surreal I think is the word Yeah, I did want to, I did want to see sort of like, I did want to see my mammogram. I did want to see my nuclear med images. I did want to see my planning, but I didn't, I didn't sort of say, oh, I don't think that plan's looking quite as good as it could do. Do you know what I mean? So I <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get that involved with it, but I did. So I do have all those images still, which I do use those images actually, if I'm doing a presentation on being a patient. Um... Uh, but no, I think I did. I did default quite a lot into patient mode, um, and it's true what they say. You know, when you're when you're in a waiting room, your hearing becomes amazingly acute. You're listening to everything, and you, your you, your brain does go a little bit mushy because you just sort of. As I say, it was so. It's just so surreal. It's almost like it wasn't really happening, but it was. And so, I did want to see the images and things, but I didn't. Uh, I did resist getting involved in in trying to take over how it went. The only thing I think I I regret not being more vocal about is about having um, my setup tattoos, um, and I wish I'd be more vocal about not wanting them, which which is really hypocritical because I have tattooed thousands and thousands of patients in my career. Um, but when it comes to having them yourself, um, it's quite different. Um, my two, my two lateral tattoos don't really bother me as much because it's not often you really catch sight of them, but the, the medial, medial one here, it, it went a bit blotchy and it's quite big. Um, and I see that one every single day when you dress and when you undress, and so I wish I'd had a little bit more courage. I think is probably the word to say at the time. Actually, I don't. I don't really want that. Um, and I and I think that's something else. This is probably my next big thing, naming after after radiotherapy skincare or with radiotherapy skincare. Um, and and Heidi's been involved in this as well is about the need to tattoo patients when when our fractions are becoming less and less and less. You know, when I when I was training and when I was working clinically, you know, ladies were having twenty five treatments plus three extra boosts and things like that. I only had 15 and now we're down to five. So we shouldn't really be put in my view, we shouldn't be putting permanent markers on people in that way. Um, I think we've got to find better solutions. We were, you know, we were, we were using tattoos for setup, as I say, when I trained back in the eighties. So I think it's about time that we really reviewed the impact that that might have on people. And I've spoken to other patients and some people don't mind. Um, but other people do mind. And so I, th- I think it's about that that more person-centred care, isn't it now, that we need to be focusing on and not just treating everybody quite the same as if, you know, the, the same doesn't work for everyone. So I do wish I'd been a bit more vocal about that, but we are where we are. And um, yeah, yeah.
0: Did you feel, fill out the family and friends feedback form at the end of your treatment?
1: No, I didn't, Naaman. No, I didn't you see I did ever you know I probably wasn't a very good patient was i i <laughs> actually no i was i I did behave as a patient, but no i didn't I didn't fill in one um and again, I think I would have found that quite hard because it was the department that i'd that I'd worked in for many many years so i I just sort of steer clear from the whole of that side of it really
0: yeah the the reason I ask is obviously that's how we get feedback, don't we um from from our patients for example so in our department we try and really push for patients to fill it out even if you know most likely if they've had if patients have had an issue they're still more likely to give you positive feedback but sometimes you'll get a few little points
1: yeah i i yeah i i really i really wouldn't have wanted to I th- well I don't even know if it did bother me quite so much at the time because I was just I was just in that whirlwind of having treatment it's actually bothered me more post-treatment as time's gone on um and I suppose as well it's it's because it has gone it's you know sometimes I've seen this happen before you know you can do you can do thousands of perfectly small good tattoos and every so often you go under the skin of somebody and it just disperses a bit differently and that's what happened with that one so it was you know it it, it was just what happened and it wasn't anybody's fault so I wouldn't have wanted to have sort of fed that back to the department although they do know about it now because I've talked about it quite a lot so the, the feedback has got back to them.
0: So you mentioned sort of feeling the impact more after you finished treatment how was kind of how did you have enough time to process everything that happened and how are you sort of getting on since the treatment?
1: Yeah I think I think at the time you you just you literally do have to just go with the flow and your mind hasn't even really had enough time to process what you've been told but as time goes on um there are those things that that are more worrying so you know every time when you have a mammogram every time when you have to have a scan you have I definitely get anxiety. I, I really get what people mean about that now so for me the anxiety is not going for the scan it's the length of time you have to wait for a result and so again I think that's something as a profession that we maybe if we can we need to try and improve prove that which is really difficult when we've got the staffing crisis that we have but for patients, that's the hot, the really hard bit, waiting for, to know what your outcome is. Because whether it's, you know, if it's good news, obviously that's grand. But if it's bad news, the sooner you know, the quicker you can start to process it and deal with it. But it's that unknown that is the really difficult, the really difficult part. Um, and I think as time's gone on as well, I've had a few sort of things happen that, I wouldn't have expected it to happen, even though I'm a therapeutic radiographer, and you think I would understand these things. So, I've had a few rib fractures. I've had a sternal fracture. Um, I'm getting a lot of tightness in that arm because of the scar going up into my armpit from from my lymph nodes, etc. So, all those little things over time that you just sort of aren't quite aren't quite the same. And also, I would say. Um, sometimes surprising how people react to you when when they know that you've had cancer and again perhaps naively I I wasn't really prepared for some of the more negative comments I, I got which also surprised me so yeah it's uh it changes you, Naaman. You know you can't you can't say otherwise. It changes you. It it changes partly who you are. It affected my confidence for quite a while. Um, all those things really. So it do, it does change you. You can't go through such a life event really um, without it changing you. I, again, I, I I, was at the centre where I'd worked, so I knew what was available there. A wonderful Macmillan Centre um, on the level above the department. And there were people there that I knew. So um, I had some lovely support from there um, as I was going through treatment. I think I had a couple of massages, um, a couple of foot rubs. I uh, had a little feel, uh, look, good feel better session makeup session where you come home with a bag of goodies so all those little things as I was going through treatment and actually that did make the going through treatment uh, a lot easier it was when treatment finished I felt pretty isolated Um, and I went well I I didn't really take any time much off work but I, I did pretty much go back to work straight away because I needed that sort of interaction. Um, so I think the support I think it's probably different now, Joe, again, uh, from when I was having treatment. But it was that after treatment of finished part where I felt isolated. And I'm down here in Cornwall as well, which which means, you know, it's a bit of a journey to get to 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 access anything anyway. Um, but that was the bit where, I, where it sort of suddenly hit that right now you've just got to get on with it. You've had your treatment. Hopefully it's going to work. Um, and now, yeah, you, you've just got to go back to whatever your new normal life's going to be. So that was the hard bit for me. Going through treatment, I had tremendous support. Um, I even had a couple of my previous colleagues who who gave me a present on the last day of treatment rather than the other way around, which was really sweet. Um, but I... I did used to take the treat every day as well, because I know what they're like in there. So they, they had different treats every day. But <laughs> but yeah, they bought me flowers on my last tray of treatment, which I thought was really lovely. But yeah, I it was that bit after treatment that I felt quite alone. And I wasn't quite sure what to access and what I could access then, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm quite fortunate. I've, I've. Right, since I was diagnosed, right the way through, I've still had the same GP. She's a wonderful lady, and she was pretty switched on to it all. Um, I think I might have guided her a little bit when I started having the rib fractures, but she was pretty on the case, to be honest with you, Joe. Um, and I've been lucky that I've had that consistency of having her as a GP. So uh, my GP's sort of quite a—it's quite a relatively biggish practice, but. I always managed to be able to see her, and she's been with me the way through. So, I th- I have felt quite supported in that way, and yeah, I can remember what there was one situation with with my with my sternal fracture, which had happened. I ha- did have a fall, um, uh, but it shouldn't have fractured like it did for the fall that I had, if that makes sense. And uh, my GP was uh, was pretty insistent that she wanted um a CT done just to check what was going on there in case there was anything else you know underlying going on there as well so uh no she's been great so I do feel I've been quite fortunate in that way to be to be fair but I'm sure many many GPs are are also pretty switched on in that way as well hopefully
0: yeah I can completely understand that um would you change anything going back through it so, if you had to treat yourself, um, is there anything you would change, or maybe it's just for people who are listening to better pre- prepare them to go through something similar?
1: I don't think I don't think I would change anything. I do feel like I had really good treatment. Um, I think there are little things that can make differences for people, though. So, um, things like your appointment times. Depending when your appointment time is, you 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 make friends with other patients in the waiting room, and so my two best buddies were were two older gentlemen who were both having uh, radiotherapy for prostate cancer, but they're a tr- they they were on the two other linacs at the same time each day as I was having my breast radiotherapy, and so we we became really close and one day my appointment got swapped because they wanted me to see the consultant and when I got to see them the following day they were really worried where I'd been because they hadn't seen me so it's little things sometimes for patients you know um and things about as I say things about like the dignity um what seems normal for us just isn't normal it's not normal to um be stripped off in a treatment room uh, particularly after like for me you know I'd had two lots of surgery so I hadn't still got used to my own body image at the time I was having radiotherapy and so little things like just making sure you cover somebody over um, can make the world of difference so it, it's the little things sometimes I think and don't ask me name and how I treated my own skin going through radiotherapy that's going to be the next one in here somewhere isn't it so I did wash throughout my radiotherapy I did use deodorant under my affected armpit I did shave my affected armpit and I carried on using the cream that I've always used there you go despite the fact that somebody tried to offer me a tube of Dipra base, which I declined.
0: Did you bring them the paper in that you wrote to show them as well? I... <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: no, it sounds like you are a perfect patient. That's that's the, all the advice. And obviously, mm. you know, patient voice is a, is a huge thing. You and Heidi Prost taught me that quite early on in my career. And that's something with the new skincare guidelines that really does shine through. Um, so, why is the patient voice so important? And you know, what can we learn from or with patients?
1: Mm. I mean, with research now, you're not going to get any funding from any funder unless you've got true uh, user involvement, and and I and I mean true, so not a tick box exercise. You know, they need to be uh, a genuine part. Of the research, they need to be on the steering group. They have to have an equal voice. You need to make sure that the language you're using uh, doesn't slip into too much um, technical jargon that they that, that they would not necessarily know. And when when we did the skin when we did the review of the skincare guidelines, we had some fantastic patient representation on those guidelines. And that that piece of work is. Um, has got nice endorsement on it we went through the real rigorous process of of putting it through the nice guidelines of doing it and a really big stipulation of theirs was that the 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 service users or patients had to be of equal number to to the health professionals on there and when we came to doing those skincare guidelines it was actually the the patients uh and the service users on who were working with us who actually wrote the patient guidelines um so that the language was as they wanted to to hear it you know we we slipped into as healthcare professionals we slipped into some of those terminologies like oh you might have redness where there's an exit dose and they're like you can't put that can you because they were you know what how would anybody know what an exit dose is you know and things like this so they pick up the obvious um so that the whole of the patient material was produced by patients so I'm really grateful to them for that and by including people and listening to people's voices you you just get that richness and that understanding you know now I've been a patient myself I get it even more, I guess, is, as I say, sometimes it's the little things that we don't even realise um, that, that can become the significant things. And so, you know, language is a big one as well. Um, and making sure that, you know, anything that we produce is is not too tied up in jargon. That's fine for the, the healthcare professional guidance that we might be producing. But for the work that we're doing with patients, we need to make sure it's... It's how they want it to be, not necessarily how we want it to be. And also remembering that, you know, not everybody uh, receives information in the same way. Some people like more visual uh, information, etc. So with those new guidelines, we made sure we used quite a few infographics as well, things like that to to make it sort of more digestible to read rather than just paragraphs and paragraphs of writing, which I also think was something that we picked up from them. I mean, obviously, any, any research that's been done like that is, has got to be uh, ethically sound and it's got to go through the ethics side of things. But the one thing that I have picked up on is how much we're expecting patients to do for love, if you like. And actually, for some of them, it's becoming pretty much a full-time occupation, having to come and, and talk to us guys or give presentations. And they don't you know, they don't always get even like a thank you or, well, they do get a thank you, but they don't, you know, sometimes even get like a coffee or a contribution, sometimes even to their traveling. And yet you wouldn't dream of doing that to um, an invited speaker who was maybe one of us. You'd, You'd be expecting your registration to be paid and those types of things. And I think there is something about making sure that we we do recompense them for the time that they've given. And I think that's still not there um, and something that we need to be supporting more. And then there are really good guidelines out there um, on on, ha- on how you should be supporting those patients more. I, I think, you know, we are asking them to do a lot now. And, and if we're going to ask them to do that, then we should be treating them equally and supporting them equally.
0: Exactly. If... I mean, for any novice sort of researchers or people considering research, Rachel, how do they get in touch with patients? Because you can't obviously go into a waiting room and say, oh, I'm looking at this piece of research. Do you want to be involved? Is there certain things they can do within their departments or trusts or in university?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of universities um, and uh, hospitals now have uh, patient service user groups who... um, who can participate in work. So at the SCOR, we have uh, a very small patient advisory group. We're always looking for new people to join that because there there, are too few of them for the amount of work that we want them to do. So again, I'm very, you know, Linda Johnson is our officer who works closely with them and she's really mindful about not overloading them with too much work again. Um, when we were doing the skincare work, because I knew I needed quite a contribution of people who'd actually had radiotherapy um i actually contacted cancer research uk who supported us and helped us um they they put a call out on their on their pages that we were doing a study so there are different ways like that that you can do but if you if you Doing your work under a university or, or a hospital setting, which which all our staff would be doing, then there are patient groups, there are advisory groups usually around that you can contact. But I think if you're if you're in a very specialist area, um, you know, finding a charity that has contact with potentially some of those types of people that you can maybe put a call out through some of those other charities is 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 how I've often done it as well which has been really useful
0: why would patients want to get involved in research I'm just thinking for anyone considering even looking at uh, public patient you know kind of partnerships and stuff why would a patient even want to help
1: I think I think there is something if you've been through um quite a significant life-changing health journey yourself I think there is something in you that wants to give a little bit back. That's certainly what happened with me. So it's not that I I particularly like talking about having had cancer, but I feel that I have to give something back, and that I want to give something back, and I want us to be able to learn from those journeys. And I think probably quite a few patients in the public also feel that way. You know, particularly. You know, if they if you have been through a journey and you think actually that could have been a little bit better and so you feel like you want to give something a little bit back. Certainly the, the the people that I've usually worked with, they're certainly that within. So when it came to the skincare guidelines, um the patients who actually wrote the the patient information side of it have both been actually as well, breast cancer patients who'd really sort of lived through that experience and um, what they struggled with, was like sort of maybe body odour or that lack of control of their body during. And so they wanted to make sure they could give something back for the next generation of patients, if you like, so that they were trying to improve. So I think that's, that's probably quite a driver that's in there, which is probably why, you know, they don't ask as much for recompense for the work that they're putting in, but but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making sure it's there. We need to make sure that we don't uh, overuse the small cohort of patients that we might have, and to attract more people into wanting to be involved, we've got to make sure, as Joe said, that they're protected, but that they that they are recompense for their time because it's it and it's quite a thing. Um, When you have to go back over your story, if you like, because you're having to relive parts every time you do that. And that can be quite difficult, too. So I think we need to be mindful of that when we're involving patients as well. And it's not always an easy ride, Joe. Um, uh, I'm sorry to say this, uh, but you don't always get a positive reception either. And and I've seen this on on Twitter as well with other patients um, that I sort of cohorted with because you do a bit, you sort of cluster together a little bit because you feel a bit protected. And I floated this by past some of them and they've said the same. Um things that you just, I never had prepared myself for, but not everybody wants to hear your story and and not everybody is appreciative of it. And so actually you do sometimes get negative comments, you know, um... I I've been told that because I talk about my cancer that I'm uh using my cancer for for self gain for example um that's quite hard to take you know I've I've had I've had my cancer described as offensive um so if you put yourself in the public arena you're not always going to have a positive experience. You will also have negative experiences. And that's something. So coming back to what you said about protecting our patients, Joe, uh, that's something to to be mindful of. Uh, relatively recently, I did a pre- presentation. I was invited to do a presentation um, at the BIR on on. My patient experience, and I had some beautiful feedback. Um, I had, uh, you know, lots of um, excellent and good ratings, which was lovely. But you never focus on those, do you? You were, I, I, I went straight to the one, the one comment that said that my presentation was adequate. Now. I took that a bit, not personally as a speaker. I took that quite personally as a cancer patient, if that makes sense, that I just had like opened up my heart and told my experience to be told that that was an adequate presentation. So sometimes as healthcare professionals, we forget that actually that's probably not appropriate language to when, you, when you're referring to a patient because it wasn't a technical talk I was doing, I was doing a talk as a patient. And so, you know, when you... And I'm sure Debs would have had this. And I know she did have this. You know, when you put yourself out there, you won't always get positive comments coming back to you. You will sometimes have negative. And so that can be quite hard. You know, you're lining yourself up a little bit sometimes. So we need to make sure, I mean, the the community that I sort of have on Twitter, you know, we, we regularly... Uh, DM each other you know we can tell when one of us has had a bit of a bad day or something and there's always a few that will c- come back in and and support each other um, but yeah that can be that can be quite a hard part of it I have to say.
0: I think social media has evolved so much now isn't it I mean within it takes five seconds to share your story to all across the world and I know I remember watching mm. uh, Deborah James on telly when there was a Lord who said that cancer patients' lives weren't as important or something. I remember this, but oh, she handled yeah, it perfectly. Yeah. And obviously that is yeah. because she's been a broadcaster. She, she did. Was, you could see she was visibly upset, but yeah. held it in. And uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Obviously for some people, yeah. that sort of reaction isn't natural.
1: No, no. And, and you know, even, even by... Um, you know some of the comments that would even be from healthcare professionals, um, which you wouldn't expect, but it happens, and and so it's being a bit prepared for that, which I wasn't, and I and I think that's the problem. Once you, once you do share your voice, you are, you're taking away that protective membrane around yourself. You're letting the world right in, and and most of us will do it, because we 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 hope that if we share our stories, it will take away some of the taboos. Um, I mean, that's what Deborah was doing. She was she was openly sharing her journey so that, you know, right up to the end, she, she wanted other people to make sure, as she put it, that they were checking their poo and so that nobody else, she, you know, she's hoping that by sharing her story and she, raising awareness that at some point, hopefully we will get more to grips with cancer and be dealing with it you know at earlier stages but unless people talk about it then then it still becomes a taboo I mean I became a therapeutic radiographer really because um, not long before I decided I was going to do therapeutic radiography my lovely granny Flory who was probably one of the most special people in my life and I, I loved her so much she died of metastatic ovarian cancer that she hid. She knew she wasn't well and and by the time we all realized that something was wrong with her she was she literally had weeks left to go. Now I know that's back in the 80s and cancer was much more taboo but unless people start talking about their experiences and sharing those experiences you know people don't you know, we don't want people to have lonely journeys or uh, or journeys where they, unexpected things that they just couldn't be prepared for. And actually, sometimes the only person that really knows what that experience is like is somebody, unfortunately, who's already been through it. And so that's why we share. It's not, it's not because we have a massive ego that we, you know, I don't necessarily want to show the world the state that my right breast is now in but but i share those images because if it can help just one other person then it's worth doing it
0: no thank you so much especially around the patient voice it is important and hopefully any healthcare professionals listening will remember just to be a bit kinder to the patients but um we could probably talk about this for hours and hours rachel but we are coming towards the end do you have any i mean you've given some fantastic top tips already but do you have any top tips for any of our listeners at all
1: do you know? I I think it is about that about that listening. So I think as as healthcare professionals, however busy we are, um, and whatever it is routine to us, is not routine to that individual patient. Whether they're going, whether they're going for a scan, whether they're having radiotherapy, whatever procedure they're having, uh, it's 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 just not normal and uh you know things some of the machinery we use in radiography like ct scanners mris um linear accelerators they're scary pieces of kit and, and we're used to them but patients aren't and so we need to be we need to be really mindful of that i think as healthcare professionals and, and trying as much as we possibly can in busy departments to remember that is each individual that's coming through and try to avoid terminology. And we've all done it. I've done it. Um You know, when you say to each other, what's coming next? And we say, oh, it's a breast. Well, you know, they don't, the breasts don't waddle in on their own. They come attached to a human being. So it's remembering that. And I think for anybody who's listening, who's, who's a patient or going through any form of treatment, to feel brave enough that you can have a voice and you can share your voice and people will listen to your voice. (laughs) Oh <laughs> uh, and that's not my dog. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that was Joe's dog, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh,
1: oh. No, it's been it's been lovely. I I always love spending time with you too. You know that. So it's been a pleasure.
0: But yeah, thank you everyone for listening to RadChat. Um, so your hosts today have been Naaman Joe and Joe McNamara. Huge thank you to our guest, uh, Dr. Rachel Harris, again, for sharing her experiences and stories. Um, head over to the YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. Uh, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, uh, consider reflective questions posted uh, along with any links to literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate. Please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Uh, So our next guest to feature will be Mahmoud Hassan, the CEO of M-Vision, sharing his role and also how artificial intelligence could be the future for radiotherapy planning. Um, So thank you very much for listening and take care.